Well, good evening, and thank you very much for coming here to this Reuters lecture. Not the Reuters lecture, but a Reuters lecture. We're very glad indeed that Mark Damaser, who's the master of St. Peter's, uh, is giving this talk tonight. Um, Mark began, I didn't know this, in politics. He was an aide to Paul Chongus, whom some of you remember was a Democratic senator and made a run for the, uh, for the Democratic candidate some early 80s. He then went to ITN. Again, uh, I didn't know that. And to TVAM when, uh, when his later boss uh, was Greg Dyke, who was there with Roland Rapp. Uh, that immediately precipitated him to the BBC World Service where he spent some unhappy time, and then to the BBC TV, where in the BBC has been ever since, with a series of distinguished, increasingly distinguished posts, uh, ending up as controller of Radio 4 and now to St. Peter's. He will talk for about 40, 50 minutes about the BBC, and then for half an hour, as long as we have, we'll have questions and discussion. So we're very pleased indeed to welcome Mark Damerson. Uh, thank you all very much for coming. Friends old and new. Last autumn, I left a group of creative and talented people working for an organization which has, in the modern idiom, a big brand. Its employees were prone to debate, a lot of debate, and largely animated by notions of public service. And they were very much in the public eye. I left that world and joined a world full of creative and talented people, working for an organization with a big brand, prone to debate, largely animated by public service, and thanks in large part to a legitimate but highly charged discussion about social mobility and student fees, very much in the public eye. But there are, of course, some rather striking differences between the BBC and Oxford. When I was being interviewed for St. Peter's, I was asked about my experience of fundraising. Not much, I said, because, of course, my preferred funding system is one where everybody with a television set pays £145.50. The money goes to corporate headquarters. A chief executive gives me a cheque for nearly £100 million, and then we spend it on ideas that we think will inform, educate, and entertain the public. Bingo. As far as St. Peter's is concerned, I would be delighted to embrace this system and would be happy if the putative St. Peter's license fee was set as ungenerously as a pound a year rather than £145.50, but there are currently distressingly few takers for this proposition. But the lecture on higher education finance will be for another day, and I'm here with thanks to the Reuters Institute for getting me here to reflect on the 27 years or so I spent at the BBC as one of a large number of people trying to sustain its journalism and uphold its ideology. And it probably could be described as an ideology of impartiality and fairness. In doing this, I will inevitably reach for some anecdotes not necessarily completely accurately remembered and give a personal view of stories or moments where I think the BBC fell short. Because falling short is part of what the BBC is about. I've entitled this lecture The Pursuit of Purity, but I might just as well have called it The Nobility of Failure. 
because the BBC obviously cannot finally succeed in achieving perfect impartiality, nor can it fulfill all the time, or even close to all of the time, the requirements of Hugh Weldon, former managing director of BBC television in the 60s and 70s, which was to make the popular good and the good popular. Not everything in the BBC can be a history of the world in a hundred objects. But the purpose of the BBC is to keep trying in every item, on every news programme, and in every documentary or leisure programme or entertainment programme, to do precisely that. And to remember that it is not sufficient for the BBC to be better than other broadcasters, or obviously competent, or even good. The BBC stands for outright excellence, or it stands for nothing. And in this sense, the BBC is an elite organisation, and there should be no shame attached to the word. If the BBC's choices in any field of activity are defined by what is the mean average of everybody else's choices, on news values, for instance, it is simply not worth the licence fee. And even if everyone involved in the organisation is aware of its unique purpose and is animated by those purposes, it will still not lead to constant success. Again, to quote Hugh Weldon, the aim is not to avoid failure, but to attempt success. Public service broadcasting is a noble ideal, and when taken seriously, it's so taxing in its demands that 100% success or anything like it is implausible. The nobility, of course, lies in its ideal expression, to inform, educate, and entertain. And although Lord Reith was largely a monster, we should be grateful to him for the creation of that ideal. But there is nobility too, not in the definition of the ideal, but in attempts to live up to it. That is the best that can be done, and is more than demanding enough. The BBC as a whole is trying, and in my view largely succeeding, to be the great public service broadcaster it needs to be, not least in its core as a journalistic enterprise of high quality, range and integrity. And that is what I will be concentrating on. I do, though, shout at the BBC a great deal when it displeases me. I always did. When driving past Brixton Prison at seven in the morning, listening to something on the Today programme that irritated me, I regard it as appropriate, indeed my positive duty, to vent my feelings and to consign, at least in theory, editorial miscreants into the penitentiary. Such therapy was and remains good for my well-being, but it will take a little more time for me to turn into disgusted of Tunbridge Wells, and I intend to wait before I write to Radio 4's admirable feedback, incidentally still the only on-air forum of clout for the licence peer to torture BBC executives and editors. One of the marked things about even the better elements of discussion on comment on BBC journalism is how much of it is based on anecdote or prejudice and how little rigorous or even simply well-informed commentary exists. There are particular reasons that make it hard properly to examine the BBC's output. For a start, there's a great deal of it. And not all of the journalism is by any means done by the BBC's news division. So trying to get any truly comprehensive view of the many thousands of hours per year would be beyond any research grant. I talked a moment ago of prejudice, and although I am not of the view that everybody writing about the BBC's output does it with malice of forethought, I have read too many articles professing outrage about the BBC 
written by journalists with a need to conform to a worldview dictated by a notion of the BBC as a commercial or ideological enemy. Indeed, there are moments where I felt the BBC license fee doesn't merely pay for programs and services on television, radio, and online, but that a proportion of the license is reserved to provide a diet of apparent BBC atrocities for some journalists to make a living and thereby to add to the gaiety of the nation. If it's a dull day, there must, in some newsrooms, surely be an F1 key, which can automatically write out a paragraph. There was outrage today at the BBC's plans to show, reveal, discuss, and then the journalist has a drop-down menu to choose a topic, from the views of a Cambridge academic about the age of sexual consent to the number of the BBC people sent to cover the rescue of the Chilean miners, or even to a 50-50 joke on the news quiz with a million other possibilities in between. The torrent of negative publicity can have a painful and distorting effect on the BBC's panjandrum class. More so because difficult stories for the BBC get magnified by the BBC's own coverage, for fear that if a difficult story does not gain a great deal of prominence in BBC output, the organisation looks editorially compromised. Items about the BBC, particularly if it's in crisis, get booted up the running order. This is what I call painful purity. And then there's an extra twist gleefully provided by programme teams, which is where most of the key decisions are rightfully taken, who are always delighted to twist, or should that be wrench, BBC management's tail. This also seems to me to be part of BBC life, and not a bad thing, though I didn't think so when Jeremy Paxson told Newsnight's audience that I was, quote, mad when I announced that the 5.30 morning UK theme was being axed, before Jeremy, with a delighted grin on his face, would cue Newsnight's closing credits with the aforementioned UK theme. <laughs> but the more serious and obvious point that I'm trying to make here is that I do not find the same spirit of bolshiness animating the reporting of, say, phone hacking by some newspapers. <laughs> My irritation with some aspects of the BBC criticism industry does not preclude the fact that some of the critics are clearly right some of the time, and that the BBC falls from grace, both institutionally and over individual stories, and that a kicking can have a salutary effect. Of course, of course, salaries are an issue and I wish that the BBC as a whole had got to it earlier. Of course, a more trivial point, some of the jargon used in recruitment adverts is ridiculous. Of course, BBC compliance bureaucracy can at times defy reason. And of course, people like me sometimes behave with too little understanding of life outside the world of the license fee. The BBC in full imperial mode can be very irksome the BBC is not the sole purveyor of quality, and being commercial and making money can sit very comfortably with quality. Look at The Economist, Channel 4 News, many parts of broadsheet newspapers and so on. I'm not sure entirely either what was going on when the BBC purchased The Lonely Planet, a baffling signal to the outside world about the BBC's sensitivity to its imperial reputation. And some of the editorial kicking has probably been justified too. When Professor Tony King looked at the BBC's coverage of the whole of the United Kingdom in 2008, I think it was true that the BBC had ceased to be diligent 
in recognizing the institutional and policy differences that flowed from devolution after 1997. We, I was there then, had made a stalwart effort to understand the impact of the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly for a few years, accompanied by a truly Gothic structure of monitoring that I myself had devised, but we probably had ceased to be sensitive to differences within the United Kingdom on a range of policy issues after the initial surge of accuracy and care had worn off. And as regards over Manning, I am not saying that each and every person who goes to cover a story for the BBC is invaluable. Later in this lecture, I want to sketch out a new way in which the quality of a limited part of BBC journalism might be discussed, primarily for the benefit of the BBC, rather than to provide more entertainment and copy for the gentle folk of the press, and even for journalism schools. But I will come to that after I indulge myself by looking back at particular stories that I was involved in or have some knowledge of. And I shall be doing this in a way that is perforce personal, fragmentary, and cannot be taken as academically rigorous. And that is my point, because there is no really convincing critique available of the BBC's treatment of most stories, only mounds of anecdote, prejudice, and I dare say, even dollops of BBC defensiveness. I should like to introduce this section of my argument with a bold statement that the BBC is a better journalistic enterprise than it was when it was more self-consciously swaddled and defined by the memory of Lord Reith, is better than when it was defined by its role in World War II, or even when it was allowing dissent to be expressed during the Suez Crisis in 1956. Indeed, even a cursory examination of Lord Reith's BBC will tell you how far the BBC was from impartiality during the general strike, and a recent archive on 4 on Radio 4 about J.B. Priestley's wartime broadcasts will tell you how susceptible the BBC was to subtle expressions of displeasure from government. Indeed, my first experience of the BBC at the World Service in Bush House in 1981 was one of an overcautious, old-fashioned, and complacent place. I found it baffling. I remember a program I compiled on the hunger strikes in Northern Ireland being changed because it included some hellfire and brimstone from the Reverend Ian Paisley in what I might call his pre-cuddly phase. Nobody really told me explicitly why Paisley's remarks had to be excised, but I gathered that it was because it would provide the wrong impression of the United Kingdom. Before that, I had written a review for broadcast of a Richard Nixon book called The Real War, which was spiked for being too critical. This was at a point when the World Service was facing unpleasant budget constraints, a consequence of Mrs. Thatcher's public spending cuts. It was being championed vigorously by many politicians and newspapers as the only true keeper of the BBC flame. But it was not so. In fact, at the time, Radio 4's coverage of most stories was more adventurous and more intellectually curious. And a great deal of the material that surfaced on the World Service had been garnered from the widely thought of as vulgar domestic services of the BBC. I should say that the situation now seems to me to be different. The World Service in English, which is all I can easily talk about, is far more ambitious and also technically better. The programs are made with more imagination. And in saying this, I'm not trying to belittle the mistake regarding the report on Live Aid, but rather to say that the overall quality of the enterprise has gone up and not down. And at this point, I should echo Chris Patton and remind everyone that although the funding arrangements for the World Service will be changing so that it will be financed by the license fee 
and not directly by the taxpayer, as is currently the case, that change does not take effect until 2014. And in that period, the government has reduced the amount flowing to the World Service, and there have already been cuts in both output and jobs. That is a shame, a great one. And though I know a campaign to reverse the cuts will not move votes on the doorstep, I urge the government to think of the BBC World Service as it does Andrew Mitchell's protected aid budget. It may not be vaccines, but the cutting off of information to some audiences who can't get decent news elsewhere is a mistake. Chris Patton's weekend intervention suggests that when the BBC takes over the funding of the World Service, there will be a real terms increase for it. But the cuts will have come first. More's the pity. Saying that the World Service was overrated in the early 80s does not mean that all was rosy in other parts of the journalistic empire. It's worth recalling that the BBC I rejoined in 1984 had a TV news service that was widely to believe to be running second behind ITN, now ITV News. ITN had more viewers, it seemed sharper, fleeter of foot, with better presentation and for what it's worth, better known presenters. BBC News, it's true, had some brilliant individual correspondents, Martin Bell, John Simpson, even then, Michael Burke and so on. But the BBC as a whole had not given news the single most obvious justification for the license fee, the attention it needed. Current affairs, to be sure, was higher status and attracted a lot of the most able, but news was a problem child. So time to give John Burt credit and Greg Dyke and Mark Thompson. And I should add at this point, very few people on the planet would be prepared to utter that sentence. <laughs> because in their very different ways, the news division created by John Burt has become the BBC's pivot. And though there have been ups and downs, it's largely not been deprived of cash or care. To anybody under the age of 40, it is scarcely credible that the BBC was lagging behind, its core purpose being pursued with more effect elsewhere in broadcast Britain. But so, to at least a significant degree, it was. The differences in style between John Burt and Greg Dyke are obvious. Indeed, they ended up, in effect, running against each other. Many of you will know at least the cartoon version of their respective styles. Greg's tactile, hands-on interest in morale, his very vocal support for programme makers, while apparently too keen to sacrifice the serious for the popular and not much interested in impartiality and rigour. All of this in contrast with John Burt's love of strategy and systems, constantly fussing about institutional and financial mechanisms, creating internal markets, unable to talk about programs disliked by the staff at Dalek. In fact, their public spatting gets in the way of seeing some real similarities. Both of them came from LWT in the days when the ITV system might throw up a director general, long since gone. They both proclaimed their ability to tell it straight and insisted that as outsiders, they could puncture the BBC's defensiveness, and in particular, its neurosis about admitting to mistakes. We, the tribal insiders, stood accused of being too thin-skinned. In fact, both John and Greg were very shaken by the extent of the buffeting they experienced after they joined the BBC. And dare I say it, they turned out to be as thin-skinned as the rest of us, <laughs> or more. 
Mark Thompson, by contrast, more or less a BBC lifer, seems to me to have as a principal strength a very thick hide indeed, something that probably grew at least in part when dealing with political complaints early on. Most of the incoming artillery bounces off him. But there are similarities between John Burt and Greg Dyke that should knock holes in the cartoon versions of their tenure as director generals. John did care about programs, and Greg was a great deal more interested in serious journalism and upholding impartiality than is popularly assumed. So John Burt first, he's received much praise for his big strategic insight about the coming of the web world, but not enough praise for the specialist revolution in news. Together with Ian Hargreaves, Ron Neal, and Tony Hall, now at the Opera House, and others, a much greater number of heavyweight correspondents in a large number of subject areas were recruited because they seriously knew their stuff. It was a great step forward for BBC television. Radio was already further forward. Of course, sheer economies of scale and the license fee made it economically possible to do this, and there were some duds along the way. The grammar of the medium may not always have been respected, but the arrival of specialist journalism on TV led to the transformation of the BBC's domestic journalism. The BBC had always had a cadre of brilliant foreign correspondents, the Wheelers, <coughs> Priestlands, Pettifers and the like, and of course some very good domestic journalists too, but nothing like what has been on offer in recent years. We're now all familiar with Andrew Marr, who transformed the nature of broadcast political journalism in the UK. Evan Davis, Stephanie Flanders, Robert Peston, Nick Robinson, Mark Easton, and others. But specialism was introduced into a BBC news culture that often derided it. As for Greg, I once heard him expletive, and that part of the cartoon dyke is true. Expletives were not rationed. I once heard him expletive about the need for TV channel controllers to stop poking their noses into news affairs. I also heard him insist on the creation of a highbrow analytical program on BBC Two, no matter how small the audience might be, much to the complete bafflement of the then controller of BBC Two, who assumed that what was printed in the newspapers about Greg, the populist, only begetter of Roland Rat, was all of a piece and true. But it was also Greg who beefed up business coverage, with Jeff Randall as John the Baptist to Robert Peston's you can fill in the rest of this religious analogy yourself. Um, it was Greg who wanted more arts coverage on television, and it was Greg who fretted hard about what should happen to staff who went on the anti-war protest in February 2003 and made it clear that if anyone went on the march, they would forfeit any editorial role of any kind in the coverage of the coming conflict with Saddam Hussein. And it was Greg, too, who worried about the lack of balance on phone-ins in the run-up to the war, demanding to know why it was that so few voices were raised in favour of Tony Blair's policy. The answer, by the way, is not the BBC producers suppressed one side of the argument, but that so few pro-government supporters chose to take to the airwaves. But neither John Burt nor Greg Dyke could command a fluent public language to make the most of their attributes and explain the contemporary BBC to its multiple constituencies. Greg Dyke's language was too loose and informal, John Burt's too rigid. Mark Thompson, despite the occasional P.D. James moment, seems to me more easily able to find a language to explain the BBC's purposes, both to its staff and to the outside world. 
And his Edinburgh speech in August 2009, the day after James Murdoch's anti-BBC one, the day before at the festival, will stand the test of time. The reliability and predictability of the license fee has been a huge reason for the news division's success, but ITV contributed to its own decline in weight. The ITV scheduling changes of 10 years ago have had their miserable effect, and sometimes obscure ITV News' ability to move fast and produce first-rate broadcast journalism. I recall with some pain their tremendous reporting in 2003 of the Second Gulf War against a background of falling audiences and scheduling drift. They were superb. The BBC was spared ITV's scheduling dilemmas, which led to ITV coming up with the wrong answer. I grant you it was tricky, but it's interesting how the governance of ITV or Channel 4 or any other part of the broadcast system in the UK is a Cinderella subject, whereas a tremendous amount has been written about how the BBC's governance apparently doesn't work, with DCMS, secretaries of state of all parties and their shadows, mostly competing to be as critical as they can. I think the debate has been massively disproportionate. You would think we were dealing with FIFA. <laughs> yes, there is always a difficulty about defining the boundary between cheerleader and regulator, and I can see the institutional neatness of taking all regulation to Ofcom, but neatness is not the answer to every problem. I am, I know, a BBC patriot, but I don't think it's mere sentimentality to say that the BBC seems to have done rather well at serving its many audiences while remaining loyal to its purposes. <coughs> I don't therefore see that its leadership has constantly failed, nor that any weakness is born from institutional or moral rottenness. Ed Richards' team has done a good job at Ofcom, but I remain uncertain at best about having an outside body, inevitably under a constant stream of pressure from a host of anti-BBC voices, having the final say on where the balance lies between the public interest the audience as citizen, and other legitimate interests where the audience is perceived as a group of consumers. One change I would strongly advocate is that every incoming BBC trustee, after having been selected, should be publicly interviewed, ratified, if you like, by the select committee, as happened with Chris Patton. So as I'm about to launch into a reflection on the BBC's coverage of some particular stories and look at areas of broadcast grammar where I think there is discussion to be had, I should like to take stock. The BBC is run by people who care a great deal about its journalism, from Chris Patton and Mark Thompson downwards. They know that purity is impossible. They believe in its pursuit. The corporation is not going to the dogs. It is a great deal more powerful and largely more able than the BBC I joined. And although it is not the exclusive provider of excellence, it is the big player in impartial journalism, and it merits being such. So where might we have fallen short? A few words on Lord Hutton. It has been trawled over enough, and I have little to add to the BBC's <coughs> position as declared in court in 2003 by the BBC's barrister, Andrew Caldicott. The BBC chose to admit it fell short, not because it was tactically expedient, though I suppose we hoped that Lord Hutton would give us some credit, but because we thought Greg Dyke and Gavin Davis very much included, that it was the appropriate way for a public service institution to behave. Just one obvious thought eight years on. Trust in the BBC dipped after Hutton, briefly. It then jumped up sharply. I suspect for years to come, when the nuances are increasingly less well remembered, the whole horrible, grisly business 
will come to be seen as a significant example, perhaps the significant example, the emblem, in fact, of the BBC's independence. Why? Partly, I suppose, blood was very expensively drawn. The chairman and the director general both went. And then, of course, there were no weapons of mass destruction. And with every contribution to the debate and piece of evidence laid before the Chilcot inquiry, it is getting harder and harder to argue that the dossier was not sexed up in ways several leagues beyond Lord Hutton's very limited <coughs> definition of the term. But in fact, a story where we may have done worse, if only in some places, was that involving the MMR vaccine and the suggestion there was a causal link between it and autism. This was a story where, of course, we couldn't possibly have had the technical knowledge to say yay or nay, though it was hardly unique in that regard. But some of the time, I think we failed properly to calibrate the weight of the differing points of view on offer. And I should at this point explicitly exonerate the BBC's then health editor, Neil Dixon. We could not have known in the late 90s what was subsequently revealed about the nature of the funding that was aiding Dr. Andrew Wakefield in his research. But we did choose, at least on, a, on occasion, to discuss or analyze the story as if there were two camps of equal weight. And at least sophisticated, something on the lines of, here is a family coping with the sadness of dealing with an autistic baby. Here's a man presented as a scientist who thinks there's evidence of a causal link between autism and MMR. And here's another man, sometimes a woman, another scientist who thinks there is no such link. And then here is an interview with an under pressure politician to explain why the government was not pumping tens of millions into providing three separate jabs or getting rid of the vaccine altogether. This is inadequate. There's a general point here. There is a range of stories, often scientific or technical, where we cannot pretend to have enough expertise within the BBC to provide an independent assessment based on first principles. Rather, the BBC's job is to weigh the sources and be clear with the audience about the balance of experts' views. This is not the same as saying that the majority of experts, even if it's a very clear majority, as was the case with MMR, is bound to be right and all dissent is flaky. Once upon a time, Galileo would have been alone on what would have been thought of as the wrong side of an argument. But it is clearly preferable to state about a particular problem that the BBC does not know the answer itself, whilst being transparent about the nature of a debate being conducted by those who do know something about the particular subject. So in the case of MMR, we really should have had our editorial judgments across the board framed by the understanding that a very big majority of scientists didn't think that Dr. Andrew Wakefield's work stacked up. At least I don't recall us doing Vox Pops on the subject, heaven forfend. I attended a seminar last year with, amongst others, Sir Mark Walpert of the Wellcome Trust, and he pointed out the utter uselessness of seeking to run any sort of poll whether quasi-scientific or mere vox poppery on subjects which are susceptible to genuine scientific inquiry. A poll on whether MMR is the cause of autism is useless. That may be an easy example, but it applies too to opinion polls on at least some aspects of the global warming debate and to GM foods. Maybe the politicians find this useful to know just how much work needs to be done to inform the public about these issues, but otherwise no use. There have been times and other subjects where I don't think the BBC as a whole has managed to find a consistent reporting record or tone of inquiry. I will look at a few. Afghanistan. I don't think the coverage of Afghanistan now is lacking. And I'm enormously respectful of those out there in the field or have been there earlier, but I don't think the BBC was always consistently interested enough. 
Clearly, there was a great deal of good and sophisticated coverage in the winter of 2001 after 9-11. The theatrical highlight, John Simpson's walk into Kabul. But I'm pretty sure that journalism then reflected an understanding of the tribal nature of Afghan politics and the innate difficulty of occupying the country, well evidenced by its history. So far, so good. But then came Iraq. And to a considerable extent, what happened to the armed forces, to diplomacy and politics, happened to journalistic appetites. Iraq sucked up all or nearly all the BBC's energies, and that was unsatisfactory. There was the occasional report on the BBC and in serious newspapers, which indicated that the enterprise was not going swimmingly, but nothing that I can recall from its position in the schedule that really tipped the public off that it was going rather poorly. It seemed to come as a surprise several years later, in 2007, when Hamid Kazai, the smooth English-speaking fashion icon of 2002, emerged as a corrupt obstacle to Afghan reconstruction. Indeed, I recall trying to launch an Afghan season on Radio 4 in 2007-8 after a conversation with a senior Western diplomat who told me things were going very badly. But I had a great deal of trouble persuading some brilliant program editors that there was enough of a story. We did it, but it went off with less conviction than necessary and made insufficient impact. The BBC ought to be able to concentrate on more than one foreign policy crisis at a time. I choose as my next example the issue of party political funding, and I do so because it introduces another requirement that the BBC needs to fulfil in its pursuit of purity, ensuring there is enough sophisticated context, even in news bulletins, to ensure that the public is allowed to know more than a story's obvious landmarks. All of the UK's main political parties, and for that matter many of the minor ones, have been significantly bruised by accusations of impropriety when it comes to the business of raising cash to finance their operations. The roll call of difficulty is large and extends back many years. Bernie Eccleston, Lakshmi Mittal, allegations that Tony Blair's entourage was involved in handing over cash for peerages, donations to the Conservatives from non-DOMs, the fraudster Michael Brown's £2.4 million to the Lib Dems, we could go on. Each of these correctly occupied large amounts of broadcast time. Nothing wrong with that. But there is a heap of political wisdom that suggests the level of corruption is lower than when the funding rules did not exist. That does not mean every report or interview needs to be preceded or followed by a reminder of this. And I know that at least on Radio 4, and I'm sure in other places, the journalism was from time to time informed of the silliness of assuming any golden age of fundraising purity. But was it done often enough? I don't think so. And I'm pretty certain, too, that another piece of context was deployed very little, even on Radio 4. And I refer to the obvious truth that virtually every major Western political party where there is no state funding suffers from the same problem. Major politicians in any number of countries have had their careers blighted by the task of raising enough money to fund their political party. Helmut Kohl was finished off by such a scandal. We now associate Bill Clinton's problems with ties, cigars, and his difficulty in defining sexual relations. But he was heavily knocked back earlier by a raft of accusations about abuse of office when raising money for Democrats. And none of this is on the more obvious scale practiced by a Chirac or Berlusconi. This is the almost impossible task of raising money without any tint of favors being given in return. I did, in the end, commission a very good documentary on Radio 4 from Anne McElvoy, looking at the conundrum. But my every impression is that we did not give ourselves enough time in enough pieces properly to explain 
that the, BBC, the, the British scandal, beg your pardon, stood in an honourable, or should that be dishonourable, modern democratic political tradition. My final example opens up different thoughts about the BBC's editorial appetites. And I want to suggest that numbers and statistics are still insufficiently deployed as a journalistic tool. Most journalists do not like numbers. They get in the way of a decent political dogfight, which provides far more reliable fun than cluttering up a news report with unwieldy statistics. Why change the way a story is interpreted by examining the numbers yourself when so many interest groups and politicians can do the numbers work for you? The BBC is by no means the worst offender, but it has an obligation not yet fully discharged to break free from some of the sillier orthodoxies about which sets of numbers matter and which do not. If you come across a BBC story asserting merely that petrol has soared to a new record level, or hear a politician left unchallenged when making a claim that more money than ever is being spent on, say, the NHS, you should consider asking for your licence fee money back. The BBC has no excuse for not making the distinction the whole time, and more or less in any context, between nominal figures and real ones that take inflation into account. For years, politicians from both main parties when under the cosh over health or education policy have trooped into BBC studios to proclaim that spending is at record levels. The claims, in a very limited sense, are true, but they are largely gibberish, unless accompanied by at least some analysis about the effects of inflation, and more particularly in the case of the NHS, of health service inflation. Nominal spending on more or less everything rises almost all of the time, and most things cost more too. But many things, almost all white and electronic goods, for instance, are in reality vastly cheaper than they were even 10 years ago. Petrol prices are not. <coughs> but if we were forced to think of how long we have to work to earn enough to fill up a tank, compared to previous eras of high petrol prices, petrol prices look different but we just don't like to be reminded of the fact. It's not only a question of how statistics are used within reports, but how they could be used to help decide what stories to focus on in the first place. The waste of money on bungled defense contracts is truly awe-inspiring. A National Audit Office report published in October last year suggested that the cumulative black hole in MOD procurement had reached 8.9 billion. That's the entire Home Office budget for a year. But waste coming only in average dribbles of, say, a trivial billion pounds at a time, a third of the BBC's licence fee revenue, seems to induce only a modicum of interest among news editors and correspondents. It seems to be an issue too dry to command much attention. And though off the record people will tell you hair-raising stories about defence procurement, little bit surfaces. It's not only that the sums of money involved are vast, but that when the decisions don't come out right, members of the armed forces die unnecessarily. So the stakes are large. There is not a sufficiently large commissioning hunger to pursue the issue, and I'm not sure that there has been the expertise to wade through the messy business of weapons contracts and come to a considered conclusion. I do not think that news values should be derived from a purely statistical approach, but some greater interest in the scale of things might lead to a better quality of public debate. Even the performance of the entire UK economy in the boom years, remember them, 
was for too long debated with far too few statistical tools. We were told that British growth rates made us the strongest economy in Europe. What did this mean? That from one particular base state, we could show that we were growing faster than Germany or Sweden. That it was about time these other economies really learnt from us about how to manage things. Hardly. There were other stats lying around that would have raised more interesting questions about whether Britain's underlying productivity problems had been solved or its chronic and related inability to make the most of its workforce. And did the soundbite, the strongest economy in Europe, mean that we enjoyed a better economic standard of living than the Dutch or the Germans or the Swedes? Even at the time, never mind now, this was measurably ridiculous. Not true, but not mentioned. Curiosity about data matters. One BBC programme has mastered this agenda, Radio 4's More or Less. Initiated before my time as controller of Radio 4 and steered brilliantly by Andrew Dillnott, Principal of St Hugh's Oxford, and Michael Blasland, and now by Tim Harford. And clearly, Evan Davis's arrival on today has made a difference to the way the programme looks at numbers in general and at concepts of risk, averages, margins of error in particular. But the BBC as a whole should consciously seek to make more time in its reports to challenge those who make daft claims based on dodgy numbers and to encourage more of its own correspondence to use statistics that enlighten and not simply those in common currency elsewhere. Radio 4 has a particular responsibility in this and in other things as the guardian of so many of the BBC's highest quality news and current affairs programmes. It's the place where BBC correspondents most have time to convey greater range and depth of insight, and where the audience has an expectation they will receive more than to be derived from the necessarily compressed grammar of television news. Indeed, even before I arrived at Radio 4, I was able to gauge the quality of those in the core cadre of correspondents by their ability to contribute to and make programmes for Radio 4. In sub-subjects, the in-house correspondents added very little on Radio 4 to what they could do in a TV news report. Very revealing. But in a great many more cases, they demonstrated a current affairs intellect or writing skill that served the Radio 4 audience well and stretched their muscles. In a nutshell, Radio 4 is a main instrument, maybe the main instrument, for defining excellence for the BBC's news gathering effort. So more or less has managed somewhat to change an insufficiently numerate culture in the news division for the better. But there is much more to be done. I've tried in this lecture to give some specific examples of where we might have fallen short. But throughout, I've tried to stress the imperfection of making these remarks without any real sifting of the evidence. I was there in the sense that I held some senior jobs while these stories emerged and were reported. But I wasn't everywhere, and I haven't gone back to the transcripts of the hundreds, thousands of items. So I want in this lecture to propose a modest initiative to help BBC journalism. Is the BBC worth more serious inquiry? I think so. The BBC's journalists largely take their responsibilities seriously. It is true that initial reactions can be defensive, and it can take time before there is a tilt in the way thinking changes about some stories and themes. But the more important point is that the BBC can change and adapt, and that its primary appetite is for all the right virtues, accuracy, fairness, impartiality. 
everyone is busy most of the time, so without some institutional mechanism to help, it is not reasonable to expect senior figures to sit down and engage in systematic reflection on the output backed by rigorously collected evidence. But if, say, a group of three, all of whom should be explicitly and unapologetically sympathetic to the BBC's purposes and overall approach, examined perhaps three or four stories a year, it might throw up useful insights and prompt decent debate within the organisation. This would be a very different editorial enterprise to ones carried out by the BBC Trust. Nor should it be for public sport, in the way of the now somewhat notorious seminar put on with the best of intentions by Michael Grade on impartiality, which in the end just allowed serial critics of the BBC to give it a good public thumping. Stories for selected for scrutiny should not be too recent. That would most likely increase the heat, probably initiate a more defensive response, and the judgments would be distorted by immediacy. If time elapses before the scrutiny, I suspect everyone involved would respond more openly and reflect more seriously. <coughs> the three might consist of former senior practitioners, contemporary historians, perhaps someone from a decent think tank. None of this would work if the enterprise becomes subject to the Freedom of Information Act. That simply would lead to a spate of stories using the conclusions to attack the BBC. There's enough of that to be going on with. It would have to be done for the BBC and its journalists and within the BBC. I'm looking something for something that would be more discursive with no right, wrong, guilty, not guilty judgments and with no blame being attributed to individual editors, individual producers, presenters and so on. Indeed, my recommendation would be, at least initially, to choose stories which were largely covered by the aristocracy of the BBC's correspondence. I should like to end with something about the BBC's future, or more precisely about the BBC's future employees. The BBC remains a hugely sought-after destination for young graduates. I sat for a few years in the middle of my career in meetings where the BBC convinced itself it had to slim down its top graduate entry schemes. The conversations were embarrassing. They were indeed shameful. The BBC fooled itself that it didn't have enough money, and that was in an era when a licence fee settlement linked to inflation would have been considered unsatisfactory. And on top of that, there was palpable ideological anxiety in some places, about taking too many graduates straight from places like this and top universities in general. So the schemes were abandoned and the BBC recruited from within the industry or joined up with some specified journalism schools to take a few people every year. The BBC lost faith in the idea of picking a bunch of people in their early 20s who could not boast of having done local journalism or even been to journalism school and who had nothing to offer other than creativity, flair, cleverness, which can be broadly described, intelligence and motivation. In recent years, and credit to the current regime, some sanity has been restored and 15 places a year have been offered. The scheme is predictably highly competitive. Over 3,000 apply every year. Intriguingly, the scheme appears uninterested in academic success as any sign of merit and pines for those who can demonstrate, age 21 or 22 or 23, a passion for hospital or student radio or blogging or student journalism. And some students now do this sort of thing in order to satisfy the blurb and as a way of showing willing, not for any intrinsic merits, and there are intrinsic merits. But 
it is not inevitable that it makes them more suitable than others at university who have decided to do other things. Enthusiasm for the BBC or the media industry is a necessary precondition for success. It is not a guarantee of success. And there is a danger that the BBC defines enthusiasm amongst its applicants as necessarily linked to involvement with the media. Success in a degree requires enthusiasm too. And it's hardly a great leap of imagination for those selecting the lucky winners of the BBC scheme to assume that someone who has done work of an undergraduate or a master's student to a very high standard might be thought of as able to demonstrate sticking power in a different world. Lest there be any misunderstanding, I am not saying the BBC should simply plunder Oxbridge for its best talent. The best is not synonymous with Oxbridge. I will repeat that. The best is not synonymous with Oxbridge. There are outstanding students who are offering and could offer the BBC tremendous talent throughout the UK. All I'm calling for here is a fresh look at what constitutes the BBC's young intake and how many should be given the chance, not merely for their sake, but also for the BBC's. In any event, 15 a year is not enough. I should say that just from the BBC's own perspective, the number should at least be doubled. And given the BBC's responsibility and professed desire to act as the principal training ground for the entire <coughs> industry, it could be trebled. Nothing was more depressing in the BBC than meeting young people, not all straight from university, who were teeming with interest for Radio 4 and who were trying to find out how they could get in. They were full of ideas about programmes and loved, say, front row. And in many cases, I'd wished to sign them up there and then. I pointed them to the website for traineeships and I don't think any of them emerged again. So the BBC should employ far more young graduates who, after being trained, would then give the BBC a creative shot in the arm. And at the end of the training, they should be given attractive things to do. That will doubtless create problems in planning the workforce and involve a rethink about how to create room for them. And it may take time to sort out. But I would like the BBC to commit to a step change in its recruitment and training policy. And it is not only about numbers. The BBC has always been an attractive destination for aspiring journalists, film producers, documentary makers, and the like. It all takes a lot of sorting through, and it is an unenviable task. But I think the task is so important for the BBC's future that the very most senior editorial managers at the BBC should be closely involved at every stage. They should be looking at the design of the application forms and satisfying themselves the BBC is getting the best it can. And the Director General should be involved too. Mark is a busy man, but he should sit on the interview panels himself to see what is on offer. That would be an important signal of the importance of the whole enterprise, provide extra weight to the whole tricky business of selection, and he would learn something about one particular but vital slice of the BBC's future. I've spent some time over the last hour pointing at some areas where I think the BBC could do better, but I am convinced that it remains a great national asset a vital part of our democracy. On occasion, it can, to pervert Lord Reith, enrage, obscure, and diminish. But that is far from the norm. It delights, stimulates, and thrills us much, much more. The BBC is a simply magnificent idea, and it has deserved not only to survive, but to flourish. 
its many friends and supporters should continue to hold it to account. But as it enters a period of unparalleled cuts, the BBC's fans should not be shy about voicing public support, loud and often. Thank you. Well, thanks very much for that. Um, let me start. We'll have about 35, 40 minutes. We don't have to be out here exactly on, on seven, and there's lots, I think, for people who want to take up in that. Let me start off. Um, you have, a, you are indeed, as you say, a BBC patriot, and you had a retrospective whinge at the beginning about getting a kicking from Fleet Street uh, and about the inaccurate. Uh, nasty comment on the BBC. But what I wanted to ask you first was what, what do you expect? And not just what do you expect, but what should you expect? The BBC is incomparably the most powerful, influential cultural institution in this country. Uh, and apart from government, there's, there's very little, very few institu institutions that deserve more critique, debate, kicking, if you will, than the BBC. Example. <coughs> comes from last night, um, Terry Pratchett's program on BBC Two on uh, Choosing to Die. It was, it's obvious that program was for the, the right to choose death. That was the message that Pratchett wanted to give, uh, and although there were voices that were against that, there were very few and minor ones. The BBC was then putting a, a, a position, not the BBC's position, but it was presenting Pratchett as a, uh, a, a, a fan of this position with somebody who supported it, um, uh, and that was, for, for many people in the country, um, I think, disturbing. So the BBC, especially for I think, commentators and people on the right, remains a difficult, contested institution, and they should, shouldn't they, give it a kicking from time to time. Well, of course. I mean, I, I'm not either naive or trying to be quite thin-skinned as I accused John of. I mean, uh, it comes with the territory. You're right. There's something flattering about the amount of coverage the BBC gets, as well as occasionally uh, disturbing. Uh, I mean, there's good coverage and bad coverage. Um, it's an obvious very mind. I didn't see the Pratchett program. I heard the item on the Today program this morning and had a sense of what that was about. And I noticed well done editorial policy of the BBC, but there was a debate immediately afterwards, which clearly was designed to put Pratchett's argument into context. The BBC has always had space for point of view programs in which an individual takes up a pronounced position and argues it. There were rules of the game. I didn't see the program. If Pratchett distorted the arguments of those against him within the documentary, then that would be foul. If, on the other hand, they didn't get the same weight within the program, and it was clearly labelled, and I don't know this because I didn't see it, a point of view program, it would have been fine. In fact, I mean, one of the problems I had at Radio 4 sometimes was that the insane commitment to the best form of enlightenment rationalism, which is what Radio 4 is, sometimes meant I felt we didn't have enough polemic. And just to answer this left-right thing, and here I'm sort of opening up one of the things I didn't manage to do, I always wanted a program in favour of the death penalty. 
it's quite interesting, not because I myself am, it's all my liberal friends suddenly in time. <laughs> um, uh, because we've all read the polls and we all know that there is a very, very significant weight of opinion out there. And I don't think it's sufficiently reflected on the BBC and in other liberal journals. So there's room for, as it were, point of view programmes of all, as it were, different kinds. So the theory that it's a systematic bias to the left, I don't buy. Um, uh, I am aware, and this would apply to virtually a lot of journalists in this room, that the vast majority of journalists that I've ever met are socially liberal, no matter where they are politically. But on issues of sexual mores, for instance, or uh, as it were, abortion, um, capital punishment, that spectrum of issues, whether they work for the BBC, the Telegraph, the Guardian, or the Times, the vast majority will meet in metropolitan journalism are of a liberal social disposition. The question is, how good is the BBC at fighting it? Well, it's imperfect. Um, and there are moments, I dare say, where it shows through, but it is being fought. But somehow you never put on that programme. No, um, I didn't try hard enough, um, and I'm not going to go back and do it. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Can you say who you are?